is Bloomberg Surveillance. It's not the job of finance ministers and central bank governors to accelerate a crisis. It's our job to try and avoid a crisis. The danger of what's going on in market at the moment is that it does feed back to the real economy. Right now, I don't think we need to do any new fiscal policy. So it's really a question about what's going to happen in the future. Bloomberg Surveillance, your link to the world of economics, finance, and investment on Bloomberg Radio. Good morning. I'm Michael McKee. It is 7 a.m. on Wall Street, 8 p.m. in Shanghai, where the yuan is falling after China cuts bank reserve ratios by 50 basis points. The rest of the world so far ignoring it. The G20, of course, over the weekend telling investors they worry too much. This morning, markets throwing their toys out of the pram in response. Tokyo finished down 1.3%. Europe at the moment is lower the stock 600 by three-tenths, about a point. The DAX is down 95 points, uh, full percentage point lower. We are at the moment uh, looking at a headline from the Bloomberg Professional Federal Mogul getting a merger proposal from Icon Enterprises. We'll check that out and get you more details as they become available. In the U.S., futures are lower, although they have paired their losses. S&P futures down by three points, a little over a tenth of a percent. It's a two-tenths drop for Dow futures. They're off 31, and NASDAQ futures off 14 points now, three-tenths of a percent. The yield curve. Moving lower in the U.S. and in Germany. Right now, the two-year at 78 basis points. The five-year, 1.23. The 10-year going for 175 in the U.S. Eight to, uh, from two years to eight years, German yields dropped to record lows. The two-year in Germany now negative 56 basis points. Dollar strengthening today a little bit. The DXY index is up by two-tenths of a percent. The yen is lower. Uh, 112.99. The euro is lower, 108.85. The pound's lower, 138.52. So um, that's the currency reaction to the G20 right now. Oil is mixed. West Texas Intermediate, 32.79, unchanged. Brent crude, 35.40, up 30 cents on the day. So who will be proved right? G20 policymakers or financial markets? Ben Emmons is a managing director at Leader Capital. He's been watching the reaction to the G20 statement. Uh, Ben, G20 said that uh, the fundamentals are better than the markets think. The markets today don't agree. Hi, good morning, Mike. Yes, indeed, markets don't agree. I think the G20 statement was kind of clear about that global monetary policy cannot be used for devaluations and Kind of carry all of the carry the uh, you know sort of forward the, the economy. In other words, you can't rely, keep relying on monetary policy. I think markets are maybe reacting to that a little bit. I would say though that what happened overnight in China isn't necessarily a positive because as the yuan weakens with tonight the manufacturing data and non-manufacturing data coming out in China, maybe linked to that too. People are looking at this very closely each time the yuan weakens. It's maybe a precursor to that the data there is week two, uh, and we get this week non-ISM uh, data out as well. So I think markets are wary of that type of data where they're responding negatively. As you said, the G20 is typically not a really strong statement. I think this time I felt that the statement was very much about central banks. You can't do this all by yourself. Uh, you know, It needs to be more coordinated. And because there's no real clear agreement about the coordination, at least with unclarity. And so that uncertainty doesn't help markets either. So markets disagree. A lot of people suggesting uh, central banks are kind of at uh, the point of diminishing returns, if not worse. 
and I don't think anybody thinks that there's a, a the political will for fiscal uh, response. So is this really less about what's going on with the G20 than it is the markets looking at the economic situation, say looking at the, the GDP report in the U.S. that was better than expected, but the composition wasn't so great? Yeah, I would agree with you there, and I think you know one of your stories on, on top stories this morning about that the Fed's dots don't connect is a really good point there. Markets are completely moved away from what the Federal Reserve thought the path would look like, and that indicates that markets have said like this type of monetary policy isn't anymore the solution for the economic problems that we have. Uh, even negative rates have been clearly rejected by markets. They look at this as a negative rather than a positive. And yet, what we have left with is just monetary policy. And um, I think the view has become, too, is like what's going on in China will matter even more from here on. Uh, Whatever the People's Bank of China, the Central Bank of China, is going to do in terms of its monetary policy will have a big impact on on markets. So markets are wary of that monetary policy in the developed markets has run its course. Negative rates don't work. Tightening isn't a good thing. They have to look at other central banks. Yeah. That's the, the Chinese central bank, for example. Uh, ben Emmons with us, Leader Capital. Good morning, everyone. Bloomberg Surveillance. We're brought to you by Invesco. Factor-based strategies can help investors focus on high quality, low volatility, and more. Learn more at Invesco.com slash high conviction. Invesco, I-N-V-E-S-C-O, Invesco.com slash High conviction. Uh, ben Emmons, um, where are we on our theory? We have a theory of China. We have a theory of G20. We have a theory of monetary policy. I've got a theory of negative rates with a German two-year negative 0.57 at one point, a 10-year German 0.108 clearly heading towards uh, near or at negative interest rates. Is there a theory to what we're doing now, or are we just, just making it up as we go? Well, there's a theory always about that these negative rates, in theory, really work well. But um, I think, as you're saying, as we're kind of assessing as we go along from here each time these policy measures are announced. So we're going to get the ECB on March 10th, and they have signaled ahead that they're going to make changes to their policy, uh, probably more negative rates, probably more quantitative easing, probably. And markets are kind of trying to assess, well, is this really going to change things from here on the data ultimately doesn't does does matter i think the data tonight in china pmi data as well as in the u.s as elsewhere is going to be a big deal uh, for market direction because that's really forward-looking data and and so far what we've experienced particularly a few weeks ago when the non-ism manufacturing data in the u.s dropped which pretty sharply was a period that markets got into a very negative environment. So I think that data really matters. And so that these policy measures that they've put in place is sort of, yeah, that's the theory, but the data ultimately determines that. And I think that's what your article this morning says too. The connection between the dots and the, and the market isn't there really because markets are assessing the data just very differently than the Fed does. Well, of course, the dots were, you know, published in mid-December, even uh, Fed officials, all, uh, pretty much everybody who's spoken since then has moved away from those. Uh, is it a mistake to be still comparing, uh, you know, uh, for, for markets to trade off the idea that the Fed is wedded to four, four moves? No, that's true. I, I mean, markets have, have 
early on already decided to say, well, you know, that's, that, that sounds pretty optimistic to, do, to have four hikes this year. Uh, although if you take us back in, you know, let's say since September or so, October, there were views out there that the Fed would hike that much this year. It's all changed now, really, because data's changed. And obviously, as you said, like, yeah, part of this projection is a bit still now because of the data has changed. That said, I think markets are just looking forward to the next points of data to look at, like, well, Fed, can you really be vindicated in that kind of a path, yes or no? And markets have continued to judge, mm. yeah, that's not true, right? You're not going to be vindicated. The data right. simply doesn't doesn't really match your projection. And then we keep being in this situation, right, and haven't really – We've been in this before over the last sort of year, two years. We'll keep facing this again. The, the Fed won't, won't be able to really make its projection uh, worthwhile. Yeah. Right? Uh, ben Emmons with us, Leader Capital. He'll come back and we'll continue this discussion, setting up the template for uh, Monday. A little bit of politics folded in here today, as I believe there's a few elections uh, tomorrow. Mike, out on Twitter, Javier Bloss with a blue, beautiful Bloomberg terminal chart of Venezuela foreign exchange reserves uh, it is stealthier negative rates yeah <laughs> yeah it, no. I, I, I shannon o'neill was just on with council on foreign relations mm-hmm. she puts it as summer fall is where but, but she said default. it's hugely open to debate the question open. is what's the uh, what's the impact um it's it's so well advertised and uh their their yeah. foreign trade is so small that uh, at this point, people are sort of like suggesting this is the best idea, which you don't often see. Yeah, as, as, as well, but uh, something to oh, get the money. Uh, so what else do you Let have? me bring people up to date here. Federal mogul. Uh, Carl yeah. Icahn owns about 80% of the company right now. He wants to buy the rest of it. Uh, he's bidding $7 a share in cash. That's a premium of 41% over Friday's close of $4.98. Uh, the stock halted. Uh, for the mm-hmm. news at the moment, so we'll we'll keep you up to date on how it reacts to that. Um, Federal yeah. mogul going to appoint a special committee to review uh, right. Icon's proposal. A uh, major shout out, Peter Arment of Stern AG, who made his brilliant Friday on UTX Honeywell. That is a podcast. Michael McKee and I are pleased to tell you, free podcast iTunes is the best way to get them. Free podcast iTunes are complete programs which some people like. I know, John, you like to hear all 40-some 40 40 some minutes of it. How I spend my have, weekend. Yeah, and then the individual podcast as well, including the important UTX Honeywell uh, interview of Friday. Time to check in with Michael Barr now and get the latest world of national headlines. Michael. Mike, Tom, thank you very much. The day before the Super Tuesday primaries, there's a controversy about an endorsement from Republican frontrunner Donald Trump, and he is squarely in the middle. Rivals say Trump hesitated to denounce an implicit endorsement from former Ku Klux Klan leader David Duke. Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz both slammed Trump. The State Department is releasing what it's calling the final batch of Hillary Clinton's emails. The Democratic front-runner was Secretary of State. Clinton used a private server to handle official messages. Republican opponents say it was a risk to national security. Spotlight won for Best Picture at last night's Academy Awards. Leonardo DiCaprio won for Best Actor. Brie Larson won for Best Actress. Global News 24 hours a day, powered by our 2,400 journalists and more than 150 news bureaus from around the world. I'm Michael Barr. Mike Tom. And Michael Barr, thanks so much. The End of the Risk-Free Rate was Ben Emmons' important book on the reality of how we invest today. Coming up. 
Ben Evans of Leader Capital on our search for the new risk-free rate. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. Bloomberg Surveillance is brought to you by a Mercedes-Benz Tri-State dealer. When it comes to winter elements, put your best four wheels forward with Mercedes-Benz 4Matic all-wheel drive. Visit your Mercedes-Benz Tri-State dealer for a test drive today. Global business news 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app, and on your radio. This is a Bloomberg Business Flash. And I'm Karen Moscow. This update's brought to you by American Arbitration Association. Business disputes are inevitable. Resolve faster with the American Arbitration Association, the global leader in alternative dispute resolution for over 85 years. Learn more at ADR.org. And federal mogul holdings' largest shareholder, activist investor Carl Icahn, offering to buy the rest of the auto parts maker for $7 a share. Global stocks, meanwhile, moving lower as investors proved underwhelmed by vague commitments to spur growth at a meeting of a group of 20 finance chiefs and a cut in China's reserve acquirement ratio. Japan's yen strengthening with gold and government bonds on haven demand. We check the markets every 15 minutes throughout the trading day on Bloomberg. S&P E-mini futures down four points. Dow E-mini futures down 40. And Nasdaq E-mini futures down 16. DAX in Germany is down 1.2%. Ten-year Treasury up 3.30 seconds. The yield 1.75%. NYMEX crude oil, little change, down a cent to $32.77 a barrel. COMEX gold up 1% or $11.90 to 12.32.30 an ounce. The euro, $1.0892. The yen, 112.99. And that's a Bloomberg Business Flash. Tom and Mike. Karen Moscow, thank you very much. We're talking with Ben Emmons. From Leader Capital, there are a number of news events this week that uh, now that the G20 is over, markets can focus on. And let's run through a couple of them, Ben. Uh, A lot of people focused on tomorrow's Super Tuesday results, but uh, so far the markets seem to be relatively sanguine about what's going on. That may be, according to some analysts, because at this point nobody thinks Donald Trump could actually win the presidency. And yet you've got Hillary Clinton likely to be the frontrunner for the Democratic nomination, who has made a lot of proposals that would affect business, including financial uh, financial firms. When does Wall Street start trading off of who may be the next president and what may happen? Yeah, I think that's a great question, Mike, because um, if you look at what Donald Trump has said in the past, uh, you know, he was in a few years ago very much about, you know, I'm a, I'm a real estate developer, I like cheap money, I've always li- loved it. And if you think about that, then you think, well, that's what Marcus would probably like, right? Because who doesn't like cheap money? There was sort of a statement by him. He was also about uh, saying that, you know, I'm going to cut corporate taxes to zero and I'm going to, you know, first stimulate business spending, et cetera. So all these things are actually, I would think, positive for markets. But you're right, it's currently not clear who will be, obviously, the next president. We have a long way to go. But what is really the policy from after the Obama administration from here on? How do markets going to interpret that? Back to our earlier discussion, if monetary policy is no longer that effective anymore and markets are starting to come around that idea and say, well, that's not really going to drive market direction, it's going to have to be fiscal policy. And I think markets currently are not clear about what the direction of fiscal policy will be because we don't know who will be the president. Uh, clear is that probably as each let's say, hypothetically, Donald Trump gets elected or, or Hillary Clinton, you would expect there would be some fiscal stimulus coming around because that's the mm-hmm. way to stimulate the economy quicker, right? So either way, 
something like that would, would, would be in the cards now. There's political analysts who would disagree with me quickly, saying, like, well, it's not possible because of Congress and all these other hurdles. But the fact that you put that idea out there openly, saying, I'm going to stimulate the economy with fiscal stimulus, will then be picked up. I think this rhetoric probably will start to pick up this summer because that's when, when Hillary Clinton and, and uh, Donald Trump will be out there on, on, the, on the campaign. Again, I'm making a statement that Donald Trump will be the GOP candidate. You know, he may, he may not. I know. It looks like he has a lot of momentum, and that that that, it's, uh, that he will be the main person to uh, for the Republicans. But you would think that the rhetoric about fiscal policy is going to pick up in a couple of months from now, and and it's all about then stimulus and how to stimulate the economy against taking measures such as Hillary Clinton has said mm-hmm. about Wall Street and about healthcare and et cetera. Uh, let me just uh, take a quick break here, Tom, to note a headline that has just crossed Tribune Media announcing its fourth quarter results uh, and saying they are exploring their options. The company said that they yeah. are going to look at uh, splitting into uh, various uh, components. They may uh, sell off some of their real estate portfolio. Of course, they own the Tribune Tower in Chicago, and uh, they may uh, split it, off uh, some of the, the radio or television properties they have. Maybe it shows the immediacy of the markets. It has yeah. been a train wreck for a decade. Ben Emmons, there was a book put out years ago, sold like the Bible, The Financial Domino Effect by Ben Emmons, How to Profit Now in the Volatile Global Economy. Tell me about the dominoes falling right now. How do you link up our global dominoes? Uh, thanks, Tom, uh, for, for highlighting that again. I, yeah, the domino is really about the, the three dominoes, basically, that I talk about in that book, the political domino, economic domino, and the, and the financial domino. They're linked to each other. So I think what we're at now is that it is the economic domino, really because the, the global economy is weak, and we continue to see evidence coming out from that. And as that happens, financial markets respond to that. And now obviously, a number of weeks ago, we've had, the stress in the uh, German uh, banking system as a result of unclarity about whether Deutsche Bank and several others could make payments on the bonds they have outstanding. But that was really a result from the idea that the negative interest rate environment that we're in as a result of the economic environment that we're dealing with are now impacting banks and margins, and banks have to lay off people, and their business models are falling, and as a result, people are doubting now about banks being able to pay off their debt until there was a policy reaction. And that's what we saw, I think, the last show. We talked with each other mm-hmm. right at that moment that they came out, okay, we're going to buy back some of that debt, and then the domino briefly right. stopped. I think that's the, that's the domino we're in. We're in the domino of, of economic data that drives financial markets, and that leads then to further effects. That's the domino we're in. Ben Evans, thank you so much. Appreciate it with Leader Capital. Getting us started on a Monday. Lots to talk about. Michael, we will be in Washington tomorrow with 99.1 FM Washington. Indeed. Conversation um, with the chair, chairman, I should say. He's not the chair. The chair Yellen. Chairman Greenspan. Chairman Greenspan. Former chairman. Chairman Emeritus. Whatever I, I am dying to talk to him about his thoughts on the theoretical foundation of negative interest rates. Absolutely. Yes. I really can't wait to do that. Um, and a congratulations to the folks at 1200 AM Boston, actually not to them, but to the Boston Globe uh, people who are listening to us <clears> on 1200 AM. Yeah. Um, Spotlight wins Best Picture. It caught fabulous it, it, movie. Fabulously, it, it, by far and away, the best Boston movie I've ever seen. They caught it. There's a scene at a Catholic charity late in the movie that was just brilliant. They yeah. just absolutely... 
uh, nailed it. Uh, just an extraordinary movie. Good morning to all of you. Bloomberg 1200, Boston. Michael McKee and Tom Keane with the yield in two basis points, 1.75%. Bloomberg surveillance. Bloomberg Surveillance brought to you by Bank of America. Merrill Lynch's global cash management solutions helping you manage, protect, and invest your global cash wherever the road to growth leads. That's the power of global connections. Bank of America, North America, member FDIC. Broadcasting live to New York, Bloomberg 1130, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991, to Boston, Bloomberg 1200, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Radio Plus app and Bloomberg.com. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. Good morning. It's 7.30 on Wall Street. I'm Michael McKee along with Tom Keene. Two hours away from the opening of trading. Hard to tell exactly what's going to happen because futures are pairing losses at this point. S&P futures down just uh, three points, a tenth of a percent. They were down as much as nine points earlier. Some of the news you need to know about what may be happening in markets today. Federal mogul says Carl Icahn is offering $7 a share for the part of the company he doesn't own. He owns about 82% of it. Also, a Tribune Media announcing this morning it is going to explore strategic options for the uh, broadcaster. It's also talking about uh, continuing to monetize its uh, properties, including the Tribune Tower. Nissan Motor shares up significantly after the Japanese automaker says it plans the biggest share buyback ever in uh, its company's history, the first in more than four years. And Valiant Pharmaceuticals, the CEO is coming back, going to withdraw its financial forecast, will delay releasing its fourth quarter results. Now let's check in with Michael Barr and get the latest world and national headlines. Mike, thank you very much. Ahead of Super Tuesday, Republican presidential candidate Marco Rubio is blasting rival Donald Trump for not rejecting support from KKK Grand Dragon, David Duke, and other white supremacists. When asked about Duke, Trump said, I don't know anything about David Duke, okay? But in a 2000 New York Times op-ed piece, Trump said Duke was part of a fringe element of the Reform Party. Democratic presidential candidate Hillary Clinton is turning her attention to her Republican rivals after winning the South Carolina primary over Bernie Sanders. During her visits to two Memphis churches yesterday, Clinton called on Republican Donald Trump to unite the nation, and she asked worshipers to reject the demagoguery, the prejudice, and paranoia. The Royal Caribbean cruise ship that was damaged in a storm earlier this month was forced to abandon its latest trip. The Anthem of the Seas was forced to announce its return to port in New Jersey because of weather issues. The drama spotlight has won Best Picture at the Academy Awards. The film about the Boston Globe's investigative reporting on sexual abuse by Roman Catholic priest took the picture. Leonardo DiCaprio won the Best Actor Award for his role in the movie The Revenant. Climate change is real. It is happening right now. It is the most urgent threat facing our entire species Brie Larson won for Best Actress. Global News, 24 hours a day. I'm Michael Barr. Mike? Thank you, Michael. Now it's time for the Bloomberg NBC Sports Update. Here's John Stashow. All right, thanks, Mike. A night after the NBA's MVP, Steph Curry put on that shooting clinic, making 75% of his three-pointers. The Knicks made 37% of 
all their shots. Carmelo Anthony just 9 of 24. He's under 33% over his last three games. And at the guard, Knicks never led. Lost to Miami 98-81. to Now 14 losses in the last 17 games. Dwayne Wade led Miami with 26 points. Joe Johnson scored 12 in his Heat debut. He was released last week by Brooklyn. Bad loss for the Islanders. They had the lead midway through the third period, then gave up three goals in less than seven minutes. Fell 3-1 at Edmonton. Oilers had lost their previous seven. This ends the Isles' three-game win streak. Rangers tonight host Columbus. They just acquired veteran Eric Stahl from Carolina for a prospect and two draft picks. Stahl's a four-time All-Star. He'll debut for the Rangers tonight against Columbus. With the Bloomberg NBC Sports Update, I'm John Stashek. Thank you, John. Right now, as we mentioned, uh, futures are pairing their losses. And in Europe, we're looking at the stock 600 just about flat. This is Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Radio Worldwide. Welcome back to Bloomberg Surveillance. I'm Michael McKee, along with Tom Keen. Hard to tell exactly how we're going to start the day. We were significantly negative in the overnight hours in the futures markets and in Europe. Europe is still down a lot. The DAX by 85 points right now, but S&P futures are now down just a point. Dow futures off by 18 and NASDAQ futures by 8. That is uh, much less than we were down before on the day, so we'll see how things work out at 9.30 when the markets open. Right now, the Bloomberg NJIT STEM report brought to you by New Jersey Institute of Technology, partnering with government and industry to apply the university's world-class research assets to innovate and spur economic growth. Learn more at njit.edu. Here's Bob Moon. Michael, thank you. At 7.35 on Wall Street, here's what's making news in science, technology, engineering, and math. Something that Apple chief Tim Cook told ABC News caught our ear last week. Here's what he said. There's probably more information about you on your phone than there is in your house. As lawmakers prepare to take up the privacy versus law enforcement question on Capitol Hill tomorrow, sparked by Apple's refusal to help crack a dead terrorist iPhone, you might want to think about, if you haven't already, what your phone can tell anyone about you more than you might think. It knows where you've been and who you were with, the birthday gift you bought your mother and quite possibly who you plan to vote for, sex last night. It knows that, too, if you're using one of the applications for couples trying to conceive, from pre-installed apps that count your steps to save passwords for banking accounts and social media, smartphones have evolved from devices that make calls into digital repositories for the most intimate details of your life, and not just your personal life. Security experts point out there are windows into your professional life as well. The world's 7.3 billion people now have an estimated 3.4 billion smartphones, according to data from communications company Ericsson. And we're all carrying around computers that process more information faster than the computers NASA used to put humans on the moon. And that's this morning's Bloomberg NJIT STEM report. Michael. Thank you, Bob Moon. Philip Swagel was formerly at the Treasury Department as Assistant Assistant Secretary for Economic Policy. He was there December 2006 to January 2009, which put him square in the crosshairs of the financial crisis. He helped write the original TARP plan. He is now a senior fellow and professor at the University of Maryland School of Public Policy. He has a new report out published by the Milken Institute about the last crisis, the next crisis, and the future of large banks. And I found it kind of fascinating, uh, your look at the, the future of large banks, because in a nutshell, you kind of point out that banks fought tooth and nail against having to adopt the additional regulatory uh, burdens of Dodd-Frank, and yet Dodd-Frank may be all that's standing between them and dismantling at this point. It is an irony, and good morning. Thanks for having me on. 
that, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, look, I, I think bankers after the crisis understood that more regulation was needed, but many of them looked at uh, Dodd-Frank and said, you know, this is just way overboard. You know, things like the Volcker Rule and uh, Swaps Push-Out, which has been repealed. Uh, but now with the calls to break up big banks, and including possibly from my former colleague in Minneapolis, you know, now in Minneapolis, uh, the regulatory system has to work. Because if it doesn't work, then the banks are really in trouble. Well, you take that part apart and you talk about would this system have worked to prevent the 2008 crisis? And your conclusion seems to be maybe, maybe not. Yeah, it's really too soon to tell. And, of course, we're not going to know for sure till the next crisis. Um, you know, to me, the, the key is the, uh, the, the, the new resolution authority, the, the so-called Title II uh, of Dodd-Frank. And if, if one big bank fails, I'm pretty confident that's going to work, right? That the, it's almost like AIG is going to happen all over again, you know, which no one will like. But the FDIC, the Fed, the Treasury, other regulators can, can handle that, will impose the losses that, that uh, you know, have to be uh, meted out to make sure there's no bailout. If, if a couple of big banks fail at the same time, which is really what Title II is meant to address, it's just not clear that regulators are going to be willing to, to dole out those losses if that sparks another panic. And so that, in some sense, there's a choice then between bailout or a failure of the financial system. And, you know, until we resolve that and know for sure it'll work, we, we just don't know that we've addressed too big to fail. Well, so much of this, I guess, depends on how the markets react to these developments, confidence in what might happen in a bank failure situation. When, when a bank goes down, it's not that people think that the government's going to be able to save them. It's that the FDIC is there with bank deposit insurance. That's exactly right. And that, right, that's the reason that, uh, you know, when the bank at the corner fails, it's orderly. You know, it's not that people have any special trust in the FDIC to, you know, to do the financial workout, although they actually do it pretty well. Is that because, as you said, the, bank, the uh, deposit insurance is there? And what Title II of Dodd Frank does is says there's no deposit insurance. It's the opposite. All these, you know, um, all, all the, the non-deposit funding, that's all uninsured. And so, you know, Title II says if a big, big bank gets into trouble, the people have put their money there, other than the insured deposits. You will expect to take losses. And, uh, and we, we've seen at least one example uh, during the financial crisis when it has a treasury of the panic that can ensue, and that was when, when WAMU failed and the FDIC imposed losses on the senior bondholders that, that they probably didn't expect to take. That led to the immediate failure of Wachovia. And so that, that's the kind of panic that uh, the Tao II is meant to address, but instead it, it might spark it. Uh, in, in, uh, in inadvertently. Well, let's come back with uh, Phil Swagel. He's a professor at the University of Maryland School of Public Policy, formerly at the Treasury Department. His new paper, The Last Crisis, The Next Crisis, and the Future of Large Banks. We'll talk about the next crisis and the future of large banks coming up on Bloomberg Surveillance. Uh, right now, J.P. Morgan Chase enters the day uh, slightly higher for the the previous week at 5745 that's the biggest of the big banks people wondering what's going to happen to them if there is a crisis well right now the markets are telling us that there's no crisis but there is reason for concern S&P futures down by 2 points Dow futures 20 points a little deterioration in the last 10 minutes or so this is Bloomberg surveillance on Bloomberg radio worldwide We're counting it down to the opening bell, less than two hours to go, brought to you by NYCB. Ask about their My Community Interest checking with free NYCB online and mobile banking. Earn more. Get more. Visit NYCBFamily.com for details. 
global business news 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app, and on your radio. This is a Bloomberg Business Flash. And I'm Karen Moscow. This update's brought to you by Sector Spider ETFs. Why buy a single stock when you can invest in the entire sector? Visit SectorSPDRS.com or call 1-866-SECTOR-ETF. Tribune Media says it intends to explore strategic and financial alternatives for the broadcasting company. And Federal Mogul Holdings' largest shareholder, activist investor Carl Icahn, offered to buy the rest of the auto parts maker for $7 a share. And futures are pairing their earlier losses following a second weekly gain for the S&P 500 index. This is after China's central bank stepped up efforts to cushion the country's economic slowdown. S&P E-mini futures now down 1.5 points. Dow E-mini futures down 15. NASDAQ E-mini futures down 9. DAX in Germany down 1%. Ten-year Treasury up 3.30 seconds. The yield 1.75%. NYMEX crude oil up 6 tenths percent or 21 cents to 32.99 a barrel. COMEX gold is up 9 tenths percent or $10.80 to 12.31.30 an ounce. The euro, $1.0886. The yen, 113.09. That's a Bloomberg Business Flash. Tom and Mike. Thank you, Karen. We're talking with Phil Swagel, senior fellow and professor at the University of Maryland School of Public Policy, formerly Assistant Secretary for Economic Policy at the Treasury Department. He helped write the original TARP legislation that bailed out the banks. Now he's looking at what happens next and arguing that Dodd-Frank had better work or we could be in a lot of trouble. Uh, the next crisis you suggest uh, is out there. It will happen, but... The thing is, we never know exactly how it's going to happen. So how do we know that Dodd-Frank addresses the right things? Right. I mean, that, that's the problem. If we knew, of course, people would address it. I, I was just thinking during the NGIT commercials that that's, you know, the kinds of things they're talking about are super important. We could have a cyber-related crisis, uh, you know, something from China, uh, like the, you know, who knows? Um, there's a lot of important steps that have been taken that the, the banks are, are in much better position now than they were uh, before the crisis, much more capital. Um, they're much more resilient, and, and that's important. Um, the Fed is, is imposing a new requirement on them for essentially convertible capital to so-called TLAC, uh, loss-absorbing capital. Um, and, you know, but ultimately we still are going to have a crisis. At some point it will be a big one, and that's where the new tools in Dodd-Frank the, the Title II, the Resolution Authority, that's where they come in, and that's why I focus so much on uh, on that in, in my paper. Yeah, Phil, good morning, and congratulations on timing your paper. I'm sure you knew that Neil Kashkari was coming down the pike. I did uh, not. You, you did know, not I know that. The paper is written before I knew anything about Neil's yeah. initiative, but obviously we were, uh, look, Neil and I worked together in the crisis, and uh, right. anyone who was there, you know, uh, has been thinking about these issues. Are you going to go to Minneapolis to his soiree? Well, you know, I certainly would if uh, if he wants to include me. I'm not, you know, I, I'm not going to the first one. I saw he's, uh, you know, he's launching with uh, Professor Admati from Stanford and uh, Simon Johnson from uh, okay. MIT. What is your? That's wonderful. What is your distinction between Johnson of 13 bankers? Uh, Anad is, is, I guess, most hated professor uh, coast-to-coast among bankers. What is the Swagel distinction between those two first-class academics? Oh, sure. They're, they're excellent academics. Um, you, you know, Simon, it's a little bit hard to know what he's actually calling for. Um, Ad- Admati has a very clear message, uh, more capital. And the problem is that it's tough to 
figure out how much more capital and right she has a whole book that doesn't you know busy doesn't take that on and in fact she actually criticizes the people who try to do that hard work so to me that's that's why I admire what Neil is doing is that he's saying look this is an important question and he wants to do the work right he's got a whole staff out there in Minneapolis excellent staff and they're going to do it and it's ultimately it's cost benefit analysis and he wants to actually do the work and not you know not talking symbols okay. If he was to break up the banks, say he does that by 4th of July. That's a joke, folks. Uh, but if he was to break up the banks, what's he do? Is it like John D. Rockefeller and Ida Tarbell and the breaking up of Standard Oil? I mean, help me here. Uh, you know, that's right. I mean, look, a lot of people when, uh, you know, IBM and AT&T were, were uh, having this happen to them had dire predictions, and that has worked out pretty well. Um, but, look, he's got a menu of things in his uh, his launch speech. Um, breaking them up is one possibility, but I, I, as you're kind of hinting at, if we had three really big really big banks instead of one enormous J.P. Morgan Chase, would that thing be, would that, those three entities be safer? It's not. Yeah, it's not at all clear. The, the Fed um, are they doing enough right now that? Neil uh, needs to supplement what they're doing. Um, you know, Dan Tarullo seems to have been fairly firm on all this. Um, you know, the Fed has done a lot of good things. Uh, the, the, you know, more capital uh, is by far the most important thing, and that's what uh, you know, Anad Mahdi from Stanford. That's really been her her call. Um, on, on the other hand. The Fed is is oddly responsive on regulatory issues to political pressures, and I look at that in, you know, at least two ways. Right, one is on the liquidity rule, essentially making sure banks have have adequate high um, high quality liquidity, where the Fed is allowing municipal bonds to act as high quality liquidity, which of you know is it, those things are going to be liquid until the next crisis, and then they're then they're not. Um, and the Fed also uh, essentially eviscerated the um, the risk retention provisions in Dodd Frank, the sort of skin in the game that you know originators had to keep exposure to the uh, you know to the risk they're they're bundling into securities. So the Fed has done a lot of good, but on um, regulatory policy, including Dan Tarullo, they're oddly responsive to uh, political pressure. Do you think that um, they have weakened the the Dodd Frank regulations in a way that could be dangerous? No, you know, in in some ways, the risk retention and the, the two I just pointed out, risk retention and liquidity, uh, for sure. You know, in others, I think they've improved what Do, uh, Dodd Frank has in there. Uh, for example, the Volcker Rule, which is, is basically a solution in, in search of a problem, the Fed implemented that in a way that I think is the least damaging to the economy. By, by turning it into a, a way to improve uh, risk management, um, so that's you know that, that's to the Fed's credit. So it, it's it's a mix, and, and there is good in Dodd Frank, and you know not many Republicans are willing to say that, uh, and you know that's the challenge is to, to to maximize the good. Within this, how do you respond to banker types? And of course, Mr. Ratner uh, with us a, a week ago or so in defense of our international expansion of banks. Phil, do we risk losing our international excellence in transactional banking? That's a absolutely. It, it's a danger. And that, that I would put on the benefit side of the ledger of large banks. And that, to me, that, you know, this is a, it's, not, it's not like a math problem like arithmetic, but it's an analysis problem in trying to do the cost-benefit analysis. And that's what you highlighted. We have global banks that are excellent, and we have a you know, big trade surplus in financial services suggesting that we have uh, you know, this, this excellence. And we don't want to lose the good unless it's outweighed by the bad. 
is it necessary to have banks as big as we have them now? You know, that to me, that's the hardest question because you can say, you know, look, there are some activities where you want a global bank with global reach. You know, you're, you know, some multinational corporation arranging financial facilities uh, around the world. Uh, on the other hand, Neil, uh, in his, you know, first speech, there's Q&A, where he, he basically said, look, you know, multinational corporations have thousands of suppliers and why, you know, why can they buy nuts and bolts from 10 different companies but not obtain funding from 10 different banks? And that's a, you know, that's a legitimate question. This is just, just great. What else did you learn in your paper? One of the things, folks, that's great about Phil Schwagel is he works at his papers. He grinds them out. <laughs> How many times did you rewrite the paper? I'm guessing ten times. Yeah, I, I, I think that's right. It was originally a presentation at the Chicago Fed's banking conference, and mm. then I had the chance to go back and you know sort of yeah. write it up properly. So what did you, what'd you uh, learn in the times. rewrite? What did you learn in the rewrite you didn't know when you started the paper? Uh, you know, I, I, to be honest – I have been in, um, a defender of large banks against some of the attacks, and I have a paper. Uh, actually, I have a piece in Bloomberg View from 2012 or 2013, saying we don't want to make big banks too small to succeed. And I, I still think that's the case, and that's that's the benefit side. You know, as I did the paper, thinking about the next crisis, that's when I started to think, hmm, you know, the Title II regime. It kind of sounds good on paper, but let me think about actually using it, you know, go back into policymaking, uh, you know, world and think about using it. And, and that's where I became, uh, you know, some, somewhat more, um, you know, more worried. Phil Swagel, thanks very Fabulous. much for being Fabulous. with us today. Um, formerly at the Treasury Department, now the University of Maryland <clears throat> School of Public yeah. Policy. Um, in, in uh, affiliated with the Milken Institute, we should say. Yes, the paper yeah. came out through the Milken Institute, and uh, you know, a lot of people looking at the banking system these days and what could yeah. and should be done. What we're trying to do, folks, is give you a lack of hysteria. Mike and I will manfully try to do that tomorrow. What do they call the elections tomorrow? Super? Super Tuesday. Super Duper. Super Duper Tuesday. Super Tuesday. New and improved. No. New and improved. Well, I don't know. You know, there's a political debate on that. Boy, was it front and center over the weekend. We will be in Washington tomorrow in support of 99.1 FM. Washington and Baltimore. Thrilled to come down there to see Megan Murphy and Al Hunt, the team in Washington. Uh, they will be distributed across the nation. We decided to go to the nation's capital. In conversation with Jason Furman, Chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors, and then an important conversation with Alan Greenspan, our first conversation with the chairman since the advent of what I'm going to call global negative uh, interest rates. Really looking forward to that, and maybe, Mike, we can also talk to the chairman about productivity and that mystery. Lots to talk about with Chair Greenspan. We'll get his opinions well. on the Washington Nationals and Baltimore Orioles. <clears throat> yes, we could, we could get an update on spring training Washington style. Good morning, Washington 99.1 FM, all of you nationwide, Sirius XM Channel 119. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. We have another hour for you. <laughs>